This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Chris Seaton, sitting in today for Mike Simpson. And I'm Charles Feldman. Well, we could, could be nearing the home stretch of what has been one of the most chaotic legislative processes in recent memory for the U.S. Congress. President Biden's Build Back Better budget, say that three times fast, <laughs> Build Back Better budget, is slimmed down, far less ambitious than it once was, but still represents a potentially big remaking of social safety net programs. So what's in, what's out? How mad will Democratic progressives and moderates be at the end of what's been a messy and often bitter negotiation uh, over the legislation? And does Build Back Better, there it is again, represent the last best hope for President Biden to get any of his domestic policy agenda turned into law. We will go in depth on all of that. Meanwhile, in real world scenarios, are electric cars cheaper to operate than the uh, fuel efficient gasoline powered car, especially with gas prices as expensive as they are these days? An economist uh, ran a real world experiment to find out. We'll have the results for you on in depth. History was made this week when it comes to the uh, demarcation of gender on U.S. passports. We'll explain and we'll talk with a 70 year old woman who just became the oldest person ever climb El Capitan at Yosemite. You know, I climbed up the stairs to get to work today. Does that count? <laughs> no, no. No, not quite. We, <laughs> it, was, oh, it was three flights, you know. Oh, yeah. We start with Build Back Better. Scott Wong, the senior congressional reporter for The Hill. Scott, thanks for being with us. So the president, of course, uh, I guess as would be expected, is, is trying to tout uh, this as a framework for his plan. But uh, tell us what is left in and what's been gutted out. Well, I'll try to do my best. There's a lot to this bill. It's $1.75 trillion, as you mentioned. Uh, basically, some of the big items, um, $400 billion for uh, to help families take care of their, their children, child care, as well as universal preschool for all three- and four-year-olds. That's a huge ticket item. Uh, it would extend the child tax credit which many families are receiving right now in in their bank accounts each month for one additional year. Uh, it would expand Medicare uh, when it comes to hearing coverage, um, but it would not include dental or vision, as many people had hoped. Uh, a few other things that are out as of now, no paid family leave right now, no um, no effort to lower prescription drug prices, which was a huge priority for Bernie Sanders. So when you look at this framework, uh, there's just, just a lot of give and take from, from both sides on the progressive side as well as the moderate side. Nobody is getting uh, what they want exactly. Will, will this pass? I mean, we're at $1.75 trillion now, and even though that sounds like a lot, it's, it's down from the $6.5 trillion that the progressives wanted off off the bat, down from the $3.5 trillion that they said they would settle for, uh, and, and now $1.75. You got people you just mentioned, Bernie Sanders. Uh, will he and others in the progressive Cong um, cabinet on the Democratic side, will, will they go for this? Well, uh, the progressives just met uh, in the Capitol basement a few moments ago, and what they said coming out of that meeting is largely on policy, they can endorse this plan. The fight right now seems to be over political tactics, and these progressives want assurances um, before they vote on, on a separate roads and bridges bill, the infrastructure package, 
that Nancy Pelosi wants to bring to the floor later today. They want assurances that the bigger Build Back Better can pass the United States Senate on the other side of the Capitol. And so right now it's it's less a fight about uh, the specific policy proposals and more a fight about trust between the moderates and the progressives and whether uh, they can secure a vote in the United States Senate on Build Back Better. You know, I wonder, Scott, because we, of course, I guess by nature, we focus on what will the, the, the Congress people think? What will the Senate think? What will they have? I wonder what voters are going to end up thinking, because there are an awful lot of voters there who really wanted uh, a more progressive stance from this administration when it comes to paid leave. We're one of the worst countries, as you, I'm sure you know, uh, in the Western world when it comes to paid family leave. They wanted things like expanded Medicare to take into account uh, vision, to take into account dental. When they learn that none of this is going to be in this plan, I wonder more about the voters than I do about the Congress folks. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think there's going to be a number of progressives out out in the country who will be deflated by uh, what eventually ends up in this package. On the other hand, um, you know, some of the arguments that you're hearing from Pelosi and and others uh, in the Congress is that Look, $400 billion so that all three- and four-year-olds can have preschool, free preschool, that's, that's quite an accomplishment. Um, an additional 4 million Americans who are uninsured will be covered through Medicaid. People would argue that's, that's pretty substantial. It also creates a new civilian climate core. I mean, think about the, the Peace Corps. Uh, you know, under past presidents. Well, this would be Joe Biden's cl- civilian climate corps that would, um, where people could sign up and, and uh, be paid to, to help fight climate change. So there's a lot of things that progressives can like in here. Um, of course, there will be a lot of disappointments uh, on the left as well. Scott, one last question before we let you go. Uh, the president had really made it known that, that he wanted some kind of a deal in place before he boarded that, uh, that flight uh, for the, uh, the upcoming uh, climate conference. Um, just how important is it for him to have it done and done now? I mean, he really framed it in terms of, uh, you know, not only Democrats being able to hang on to the House and Senate, uh, if they're able to pass these packages. But he said it was a matter of democracy. He said uh, there's a lot of world leaders that have called him up and said uh, people are really wondering whether the United States democracy can function. And so he really, really, really raised the stakes before he got on that airplane today. He was in the Capitol this morning speaking to Democrats, and he basically begged them. He says, I, I need you to help me. I need your votes to pass this thing. Uh, and so Nancy Pelosi and, and many of the Democrats here in the Capitol, they want to deliver uh, these victories for President Biden, if not today, in the coming days before he gives that big speech to the Global Climate Summit in Scotland. Scott, thank you again. That's Scott Wong, senior congressional reporter for The Hill. Well, when the dust settles, and there's a lot of dust flying around <laughs> Washington after these negotiations, who's left in, who's left out, who's pleased, and who's really upset?
You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Chris Edens today. I'm Charles Feldman. Well, coming up in the uh, second half hour of today's In-Depth, when you used to apply for a U.S. passport, uh, you were uh, forced to pick a gender, male or female. That's it. No other options. But that has now changed, we'll explain. And before that, more troubling symptoms for people suffering with the so-called long COVID or increasingly reporting psychotic episodes after being infected. Right now, though, when all is said and all is done with President Biden's bill, back better budget, it's likely that just about every faction of the Democratic Party will be pretty irritated with the items that both made it into the final bill and those that were left out. Max Burns is a political columnist for the Daily Beast and NBC News. He's founder of the progressive political consultancy firm Third Degree Strategies. Max, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. So uh, progressives, uh, how angry might they be? Well, you can tell it's a Democratic victory because nobody seems happy with anything. <laughs> uh, and the error here, I think, for Joe Biden was putting forward such an ambitious package that simply did not have the support to pass in anything resembling its initial form. And that caused a lot of people, especially activists on the left, to look at what is on its own sort of a very historic piece of legislation and actually feel somewhat let down by it. Is there, is, is there a chance, a strong chance, in your opinion, that Democrats will pay at the polls because of this severely cut down bill? Well, I think there's really two ways uh, that it can go. Is you have the bad side, which is going into 2022 with the base resentful or demoralized uh, and having to defend in Republican areas while also explaining why Democrats are mostly coming home empty handed. The other side of that, though, is that most Americans haven't actually followed this as closely as people on Twitter like me. Uh, they don't know, for example, a lot, that a lot of this has been cut down by trillions of dollars. They're going to see the victories like universal pre-K, the climate investment, and they're going to feel those in really immediate ways that might help Democrats a little bit. You know, I also uh, wonder, Max, if you, if you look back at uh, Social Security when uh, it was originally formulated and passed under the, the Roosevelt regime, right? Uh, Roosevelt administration. It, it really was not like Social Security is today. It really evolved over the decades. So is that the argument that Democrats need to make to voters now that, hey, look, this is sort of the beginning of a process, not the end of the process. And as the, excuse me, as the years go by, we now have a stronger foundation for a more progressive agenda going forward. Yeah. And I think you see that even now with the Affordable Care Act, which is getting some improvements and some tweaks in Build Back Better as well, uh, that these sort of become part of the American way of political life and they're reformed and improved uh, and Democrats honestly need to push a little harder uh, on making Republicans explain their lack of support for a lot of these proposals that have very high approval in Republican areas. How much of a litmus test do you think uh, next week's gubernatorial votes in both Virginia and New Jersey might be when it comes to reaction to this much reduced Build Back Better bill the president is getting? Well, as a former Virginian, I definitely want to perpetuate the idea that Virginia predicts the country. Uh, but this is something that I think a lot of, especially donors, are watching very closely. I'm not sure how much actual Democratic voters who are concerned with getting their kid into pre-K are following Terry McAuliffe's adventures. 
but it's certainly going to set a tone. And I think if even if it is close and Terry McAuliffe wins, you'll see some conservative Democrats using that as a reason to be cautious uh, when really it should be considered a green light. You know, the uh, the president made a big deal this morning before he uh, was taking off to uh, the conference overseas that, in effect, uh, you know, his presidency, the Democrats, uh, their credibility really relied on reaching the, at least a framework for a, an acceptable deal, this build back better. By the way, maybe the problem Democrats have is alliteration. Maybe they should stop slogans like build back better. Um, Did he achieve that, do you think? I do. And I think he's brought the party together in a way that will actually yield a a historic piece of legislation. And for all of the the worries that progressives would, would abandon the party, that Joe Manchin would leave the party, Uh, Joe Biden got Democrats to a roughly $3 trillion combined package. In any other Democratic administration, uh, that would be champagne-popping historic moment. Uh, And it it really shows uh, how how much opportunity people feel that they aren't feeling that this is the best we could have done. You know, Max, you raise a really good point because uh, even though we were talking $6.5 trillion at the beginning, at least the, the progressive Democrats were, then it was whittled down to three point five, and, and Manchin and Cinema both said that's not going to happen. Uh, it sounds very whittled down now, but but it, it, from a perspective standpoint, one point, what, seven five for this, 1.5 for the other one that has bipartisan support, that's an awful lot of spending, spending like we've never seen before. It is. And it's smart spending. Like, for example, with universal pre-K, every dollar that's invested in universal pre-K yields a 13 percent return on investment to the public. It's one of the single most effective ways to sort of future proof the economy. The same with the child tax credit that cut child poverty in half after it was introduced. Uh, One of the most effective anti-poverty measures in American history. I would like to see Republicans explaining why they don't support those ideas. All right, Max, thank you for your time today. Today, Again, we've been speaking with Max Burns of the Daily Beast and NBC News, founder of the progressive political consultancy firm Third Degree Strategies. And when we come back, we will sort of take all of this in and then ask the question, is this now the defining moment for the Biden administration? This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Charles Feldman along with Chris Seaton. Well, the end of today's In-Depth, most of us on a good day could barely make it up a plain old hiking trail in Yosemite. Charles already bragging this morning that he's done, what, two? Three flights three, three no, flight no, of stairs. Three flights of <laughs> okay. stairs, I'll have you know. Well, uh, okay, we're going to put you to the test here. Today we're going to meet a 70-year-old woman who became the oldest person to ever climb the iconic El Capitan Mountain. Uh, before that, we're going to be talking electric vehicles. Uh, they might not be as cheap to operate as we've all been led to believe. But right now, back to uh, the Biden administration, back to the battle of the budget and the build back better. I'm running out of B's here. (laughs) Build back better. Uh, David Jolly, fortunately, his name does not begin with a B. David Jolly is an attorney, lobbyist, and former Republican member of Congress for Florida's 13th Congressional District. David, thanks for coming back with us. Appreciate it. 
Hey, great to be with you guys. So let me ask you this this question. If you factor in over the past year or so uh, Afghanistan, which many people think the exit from was a fiasco, uh, you factor in the uh, problem of immigration and migration across the borders of the U.S. You factor in the president promising progressives uh, and even sort of left of, of moderate moderates uh, all kinds of things that he wasn't in the end able to deliver on. Uh, are these the earmarks of a failing presidency when you also throw in that his poll numbers are not exactly, you know, sky high? Boy, that's that's quite the framing of a question. Uh, I, here's what Democrats would tell you, that Joe Biden and the Democrats came in, passed a stimulus bill that reduced child poverty, put checks in the hands of Americans who were had seen their jobs displaced because of the pandemic and actually passed a bipartisan infrastructure bill through the Senate that Donald Trump could never pass. That's what Democrats will tell you. Um, But the framing you provided is intriguing, not just because that's what Republicans certainly would point out, that a president who ran on restoring competence to the White House, uh, not sure he could make that case right now. But there was also an element in your framing that suggested progressives could be disappointed in Joe Biden as well. And that's what we're seeing uh, kind of the wrestling match on the Hill right now. I mean, Joe Biden today really put the squeeze on progressives and said, look, we can't get Manchin and Cinema to move. The math just isn't there. Go blame Manchin and Cinema. That's fine. But if you want to do anything, House progressives, if you want to accomplish anything, you got to take the deal we've got right now. It's a squeeze on House progressives. We'll see how they respond. Okay, David, you just outlined how Democrats will be responding to what Charles just put forward as a a former uh, Republican member of Congress. Let's talk from a Republican standpoint. How much hay might Republicans be able to make uh, from some of the, the failures that, again, that Charles outlined? Oh, listen, this is going to be inflation is up. The economy is less stable. The world is less stable. Let's go back to to what we had a couple of years ago. That now that's a dangerous proposition for Republicans simply because in a vacuum, that message would work very well. And historically, we see off year elections go against the majority party. However, today's Republican Party is really defined by the personality of, of one man. And it's he's a lightning rod. The Donald Trump factor still controls the Republican Party. And in many ways, You know, many data scientists would tell you the reason Joe Biden won was because there were four or five points that moved to Biden because they just didn't want to see Trump in leadership anymore. And so Republicans saying, hey, let's go back to what it was. That's a dangerous test as well. This is an intriguing snapshot of today's politics where we are right now. Well, you know, is the problem with the Biden White House and I'm being generous. Is the problem with Biden, the president, that he overpromises things? I mean, you know, again, I'm going to go back to some of the examples I gave before. You know, he promised what two weeks before we exited Afghanistan that we wouldn't see the kind of chaotic exit that we ended up seeing, uh, and then I'm not going to tick off all the things that he promised in his in his budget, his Build Back Better budget bill. Boy, it's so hard to say that Bill back budget bill. Uh, uh, I mean, is that is that the essential problem that maybe if he just didn't promise things as much that uh, his poll numbers would be a lot uh, more north than they are now? Well, sir. So, look, one promise that was interesting, he said he could bring Republicans and Democrats together. He could negotiate with Republicans on the Hill. There's not a single Republican willing to to 
pass these bills on the Hill right now. He still can't even get his Democrats in line. But to your point, it's intriguing. Look, he chose to double down on this extra human infrastructure bill. The the plane trains and automobiles hard infrastructure bill got 69 votes in the United States Senate, including Mitch McConnell. It's a relatively routine investment in our nation's infrastructure. Biden's predecessor, Trump, couldn't get it done. Instead of Biden and the Democrats taking a victory lap and saying to the American people, we did deliver, they've with they've held that up. And, and they want to double down and, and try to go for more. That's a gamble. Now, look, on Afghanistan, I would say this. The, the vote is not going to be affected by what we saw with the withdrawal and the chaos and the lack of planning. It will be decided. Well, it will be informed. Uh, America's voters will be informed by whether or not the international stage is less secure or more secure. What does the withdrawal ultimately mean for international stability and U.S. national security interests, domestic security interests? Boy, if Afghanistan goes the wrong way, our threat level in the U.S. goes up, Joe Biden would be in a, in a world of hurt at the ballot box. All right. David, thanks for your time today. Hey, thank you. Former Republican uh, member of Congress, David Jolly from Florida. at KNX In-Depth. He's Chris Seedens filling in today for Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Oh, at nearly two years in length now, the COVID-19 pandemic and the problems that have come from it, definitely driving many of us crazy, but not, not just figuratively. Number of long COVID patients are presenting with, with uh, psychosis, which includes hallucinations. This finding prompting the scientists to investigate the virus's long-term effect on our immune systems and on our brains. So joining us now is Dr. Timothy Henrich, Associate Professor at uh, UCFS or SF's Division of uh, Experimental Medicine. His lab is undertaking research of COVID long haulers. Doctor, thanks for being with us. So what is it that we're discovering? What is it that you're discovering about the effects of COVID uh, psychologically? Yeah, well, certainly. Th- again, thanks uh, for having us on. That, that what we've been seeing is that there's a, a significant number of participants or patients that after developing COVID will go on to have long-term symptoms. Now, whether this is fatigue, shortness of breath, cough, uh, or uh, uh, potential neurologic deficits, headache, concentration di- uh, difficulties, et cetera. But, but there have been uh, some scattered and, and, and uh, increasing reports of psychosis, for example, or psychiatric di- diagnoses that include hallucinations, uh, delusions, um, uh, and, and, and other psychiatric disorders uh, that may or may not be uh, due to COVID, but, but certainly our timing uh, is consistent with those that have developed COVID within the past several weeks to several months. Does it matter the severity of the COVID that the, the, the person had? I mean, in many cases, asymptomatic people ranging all the way to very severe. Yes, and I think that, that the associations between COVID and psychiatric diagnoses uh, tend to be more in those with more mild disease. Uh, but again, it's, it's, it, these are quite rare uh, and that uh, there are some uh, uh, data, for example, that are emerging showing that within two weeks to up to three months uh, after uh, a fairly mild or, or moderate uh, COVID-19 illness uh, that these uh, uh, psychiatric disorders can, can present. So that raises a, a question in my mind about uh, young people, uh, children 
who tend to not get very serious cases of, of COVID, not very acute cases. But uh, do we know, have you seen patients who are very young, who have had very little in terms of, of symptomatic COVID infections, but ended up presenting down the road with, with these psychological issues? Uh, it's an excellent question. I, I first want to to really state that these these psychiatric uh, illnesses or or diagnoses that come after COVID are actually quite rare. This is this is not something that we see very common. Mostly, what we're seeing are uh, changes in concentration or focus uh, uh, and other uh, neurologic signs, but 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 less so on the psychiatric uh, uh, front. However, uh, they are there. Uh, I'm unaware of data showing that there is a substantial burden in children. Uh, at the moment, who do tend to have more mild disease, and if they do uh, become ill after the fact, tend to have uh, inflammatory syndromes, for example, that can develop. But, but again, this is quite rare, uh, so it's unclear if this is going to be something uh, down the road uh, for many who are, who are recovering for COVID-19. What about people who are fully vaccinated? Is there any indication that vaccines will uh, somehow mitigate this? Well, there's, there's no data suggest uh, uh, directly, but I think we can all extrapolate that the fact that vaccination actually severely reduces uh, severity of disease, uh, it protects people from becoming infected, they're uh, extremely effective uh, overall. Uh, and that it is most likely that because of that, that it's going to also in, uh, significantly reduce uh, the incidence or, or prevalence of, of both psychiatric uh, diagnoses and other uh, long COVID type symptoms. So doctor, if I'm driving in my car right now, listening to you and, and, and maybe I had a, a case of COVID, a mild case, I'm home free. I've got the antibodies, yada, yada, yada. How concerned should that person be of these kind of lingering effects? I think the concern should be relatively minimal. Uh, most of those that develop symptoms uh, that, that turn out to be uh, persistent for months or, or even potentially years, they, they do tend to develop at the time of acute illness, although there are some that, that do develop symptoms over time or within the weeks after uh, afterwards, and symptoms can come and go as well. Uh, again, in terms of the psychiatric uh, uh, diagnoses, that's it's extraordinarily rare, and I would not, uh, if I was driving, I would not worry about that uh, if recovering from COVID-19, although uh, whether that is directly linked or not. And I should also mention that uh, there's a large amount of stress that we've all been going through uh, in terms of the pandemic. Uh, there's also isolation from lockdown and from uh, social and physical distancing measures. And these, these can certainly also cause stress. And stress itself uh, or psychiatric uh, dis, um, diagnoses that, that involve stress can also make someone more uh, uh, prone to infection as well. So it's, it's bi-directional. Okay, Dr. Henrich, uh, thanks for your time. Again, that's Dr. Timothy Henrich, Associate Professor at UCSF's Division of Experimental Medicine. Two neighbors, one has a gas-powered car. The other has an electric car. We all know what gas prices are now. I mean, they're really, mm. they're like through the roof. So, which one of those two has the more expensive drive? We'll find out. You're listening to KNX in Death, along with Charles Feldman. I'm Chris Seatons. Oh, uh, sure. The upfront sticker price of most electric cars tend to be more expensive than traditional gasoline-powered ones. But the conventional thinking has been that electric vehicles are cheaper to operate, especially when gas prices at the pump are so high right now. So that was the assumption for an economist when he set out to run a real-world experiment on the cost of operating an electric car 
compared to a gas-powered one. And to make it a, a more fair fight, the comparison was between an electric car and a highly fuel-efficient gas-powered car. Patrick Anderson, principal and CEO of the Anderson Economic Group, he's the man who ran this experiment. Uh, Patrick, thanks for, for joining us today on KNX In-Depth. Um, so, the comparison between the two, and I have to admit there's a certain traffic anchor at this station who happens to work on my shift, I'm not going to mention any names, who every time we have a, ooh, gas prices are skyrocketing story, he's in my ear saying, ha, ha, uh, yeah. I drive an electric car. Um, I guess uh, it, things are about even right now. Fair to say? No, I wouldn't say they're about even. They oh. vary tremendously. And I'd, I'd ask people to take a look at the actual study. It is by far the best, most in-depth and fairest comparison of the total cost of fueling electric vehicles. And we give three examples and ICE vehicles. And we give three examples there. And if you look at it uh, the way we did, and we do an apples to apples, so we, 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 for every cost there is for EV, we take the same category for ICE vehicles and both ways. It ends up that for a lot of people, the, the ICE cars are actually slightly less expensive to fuel than the EVs. Uh, I know that's surprising to many people, it's surprising to me, but when you add up the costs, and our finding number one is you have to add in these other costs that, that people typically ignore with EVs, it turns out that it's often not a big cost saving to drive an EV. Well, you know, and it's really interesting because I remember reading a report not too long ago about the environmental impact of electric cars versus gasoline cars and the carbon uh, footprint that they leave. And that report concluded basically that uh, people think that electric cars are a lot cleaner to the environment, but not when you add in uh, the manufacturing of the battery and, and a whole bunch of other stuff that goes into an electric car that does not go into a gas-powered car. So if you kind of put it all together, they're more expensive to operate, apparently, than a, a gas car, right? Uh, they may not be more environmentally friendly than the gas-powered car. So I guess why drive one? Well, I, I mean, I drive one. and uh, Why do you drive one, then? I drive one. Well, I mean, one of the reasons I drive one is because uh, Anderson Economic Group are experts in the auto industry. I see this coming. I actually ordered it in 2018. So I said, I have to, I have, to have firsthand knowledge of this, the whole customer experience, not just the PR stuff. Uh, and so I've been driving uh, uh, a, a battery electric vehicle since June of 2020. I've got over 60 16,000 miles on it. And a lot of the real world experience that we talk about in the report is based on not only my, my experience, but also those of a lot of other EV drivers that post on plug share and charge point their experiences. So uh, it's, there's a reason to drive it. I mean, that they're, they're fast, they're stylish, at least I, I like the style of the car I have. Uh, and, uh, you know, they're quiet. There's also drawbacks, and that's the reason why we did this study, is people should see a true apples to apples comparison. After they see that, some of them are gonna say, oh yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna buy that EV, and some of them are gonna go, wait a minute, I don't think it's right for me. Either way is okay with us. We want people to know the truth. Patrick, how surprised were you by the findings of your experiment, or were you surprised? I thought that the, the uh, when I bought the electric car that I had, I thought it would be uh, I'd be able to charge more often at uh, the service that uh, was bundled with the price of the car. Uh, and I never thought that was free, by the way. I always knew I was paying for that with the car. 
Uh, it turns out that uh, it is much harder for people in most areas of the United States to get to a commercial charger, particularly a fast DC charger. So for me, and, and uh, our headquarters is in East Lansing, Michigan, which is where we have the largest uh, university in Michigan. Right next to us is the state capital, Lansing, Michigan. And until August of this year, August 2021, there was not a single fast DC charger in those two cities. You had to drive 10, 20 miles in one direction to get to one. We have to drive 60 miles in the other direction. So one big surprise was if you want to get a fast charger in 50 kilowatts or more, you often have to drive a long way to do it. We call those deadhead miles. And, and one surprise for me was the degree of deadhead miles that you have to, you have to absorb, which are where you're paying for things. You're paying for all of it, but you're not getting any benefit just to get to a fast DC charger. All right. Patrick, thank you for your time today. Again, that's Patrick Anderson, principal and CEO of the Anderson Economic Group. Uh, top of the hour, among the stories uh, you'll be hearing in the next half hour of KNX In-Depth, U.S. passports will never be the same again. We'll explain. A freeway check coming up in just three minutes. You know, there are always bicycles, of course. Could do that. Of course. <laughs> KNX in depth. And today for Mike Simpson, I'm Chris Seedens. And in for me today is me, Charles <laughs> Felton. <laughs> U.S. State Department issuing its first passport with an X gender designation, a milestone for Americans who do not identify as either male or female, a third gender marker for non binary, intersex, non gender uh, conforming, uh, and gender non conforming people, that is, will soon be made available to passport applicants. Intersex activist Dana Zim is the uh, passport recipient and had been in a legal battle with the department over the issue since 2015. KNX's own Karen Adams talked with Dana and asked about how they felt over this victory. Uh, I'm feeling pretty excited about uh, the passport, getting the passport, uh, and the future for intersex people and non-binary people. I, I feel really excited about uh, that we have a chance to be recognized as human beings in, in, in the U.S. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a great start for uh, putting a crack in, into getting our civil rights. Okay, tell me about um, your battle into get getting this done it's been since 2015 it's 2021 now what was that fight well, like well uh, the federal battle started in, uh, in 2015 my battle for this started uh, in the legal front in 2012 uh, in the state of Colorado which I lost the battle for my driver's license change uh, so it's been a long time. Okay, let's yeah. talk about your, your, your situation, your individual situation. Um, you were born um, ambiguous. Um, you're intersex. Could you um, describe what that is for people who may not understand what intersex is, your situation? My particular, because there's many different intersex traits, and people have different ways of being intersex. Uh, I'm just one of 
several ways of being. Um, so ambiguous genitalia is uh, they couldn't tell when I was born whether I was uh, they couldn't decide whether I was male or female by looking at me. So this, you know, just with this X, being able to have an X on your passport really means a lot to you because, as you said, you said you feel like they see you. You know, I don't know what the next step is for sure. You know, I don't know what somebody else is going to say, I need just document for me. And... You know, if that particular agency says no, you know, then, you know, a lawsuit may progress from that. Um, So that may be the next step. It may be uh, a fight over uh, somebody in the military saying, you know, I'm non binary and uh, whether the military accepts that or not, you know. And, you know, it might be a, uh, a discharge from the military from that, and they have to fight that. I, I really don't know what the next step in this whole process would be. Would be. All I did uh, with this passport is put a crack in the system to allow us to be legally recognized by the federal government. It's, it's going to take a lot of effort to make all the changes that need to be changed, and I can't do it by myself. Other people are going to have to step up and do their part to help the the movement along. You know, I'll talk to my attorneys, and maybe we'll figure out if there's a next step um, and go from there as far as, you know, any more... Uh, lawsuits. Otherwise, uh, I'll just continue doing what I normally do, uh, which is give talks about intersex issues and, and my story. You know, uh, you know that's that's or just you know take my dog for walks and go fishing and <laughs> read books and whatnot. <laughs> Dana, thank you. You're welcome. Speaking with our Karen Adams, that is intersex activist Dana Zim. When we come back, we will talk with a 70-year-old woman, and she just made history in Yosemite, and you may be wondering, how did she do that? Stick around. Find out. You're listening to KNX In-Depth. Sitting in today for Mike Simpson is Chris Seedens. I'm Charles Feldman. Well, you may have seen the documentary Free Solo chronicling Alex Honnold's ascent of El Capitan in Yosemite without using any ropes. Well, I bet you you didn't know that he isn't the only climber in the family. No, his mom, Deirdre Wallenick, just completed her climb up the Yosemite attraction at the age of 70. She is the oldest woman to scale El Capitan's giant granite walls, proving that, well, I guess age is uh, just a number, aside from being a mountaineer. Deirdre is uh, author of the memoir, The Sharp End of Life, A Mother's Story. Uh, Deirdre, thanks for being with us. So what uh, made you do this? 
Well, hi there. My pleasure. Uh, what made me do it? Um, well, I love climbing. I've been climbing for about 10 years. And uh, I became the oldest woman to climb El Cap four years ago when I did it with allies. Um, we climbed a route on the west side of El Cap and about 13, 13 hours, I think it took us. And uh, this year, I was thinking, what can I do to celebrate my 70th birthday? You know, I could go out with friends or I could have a cake or, or hey, I could climb El Cap again. <laughs> and that's what it became. Have you always been the adventurous type? Um, I don't know that adventurous is the word, but, but I love to try things. I love to try new things. I have reinvented myself many times in my life. I've been many different things. I mean, I've been a, an independent publisher. And I've been a writer all my life. And I've been a teacher all my life. And I've been a tour guide, and I've, I've done a lot of different things. I, I, I conducted an orchestra for four years. Um, so I like to try stuff, and I guess if that makes me adventurous, then yes. <laughs> Did it take any special prep for you to do this? Well, yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff that you have to learn learn to use and that you have to learn about to climb a monolith like El Cap. There's a lot of physical work involved, so I trained for many weeks. Um, fortunately, I had a place to stay in Yosemite Valley, you know, a ranger's house, friend of mine. So, so I went there every week for like 15 weeks, um, kind of like a kind of like a college course, you know. You, you can master anything in 15, 18 weeks, right? You can learn French, you can learn math, you can learn to climb a wall. <laughs> well, maybe you can, but... <laughs> or Charles can get up three flights of stairs. Deidre, I mentioned earlier that I, I climbed up three... Now, that's a start, right? Three flights that of stairs. That is a start. See, there you go. If you, can, if you can do three flights of stairs, you can do four. Or three and that's and a, where or, it starts. Or three and a half. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or three and a half, or three and a quarter, or three what? and two little steps. You know, that's that's the... The philosophy that will get you up El Cap. He's you know? like he's Basically. like Bill Murray, baby steps. Baby <laughs> steps. That's exactly right. Yeah. Exactly right. Did Did you say earlier you had done El Capitan before when you were younger? Uh, no, or, no, you, I've you only had... been climbing for ten years, and okay. four years ago I did it with Alex. Okay, so for oh, okay, well, so you you did climb four years ago. Yes. Okay, I guess what I was going to get at was maybe a comparison. Four years ago, four years ago. Uh, compared to when you did it this time? Was well, it much more difficult? Four years ago, I, I didn't know anything about El Cap. I didn't know the terrain at all. I didn't know what to expect. It terrified me. It really terrified me because especially coming down terrified me because they, they talk about the east ledges that you have to navigate and then the ropes in the middle. And I, I was just, I did, I did all the homework I could possibly do online because it scared me so much. But it also attracted me, and I wanted to see what it was like to to sleep up there, to you know, to spend the night up there. But not back then. Back back then, we did it up and down in a day. But I was just oh, I've always been curious. You know, if you've gone through Yosemite and you look up at the walls, you see these little black dots moving up the walls. You know, it's amazing to think of. If you look up at El Cap, it looks like it shouldn't be able to climb it. I mean, that's impossible. You know, that's that's the word that keeps coming up when people stare up at El Cap. That's impossible. And so it intrigued me how you, how you could make that possible. What would be, you know, important? What would be necessary? And so, so I kind of backwards engineered it and, you know, learned what I'd need to learn, learned what I'd need to have, what kind of gear, learned what I'd, you know, the training I would need. And uh, just worked hard at it. So what is the, uh, I was going to say the moral to the story or, or the message that you maybe hope to uh, give 
to others who are your age, close to your age, maybe older than your age. I mean, clearly not yes, every yes. not everyone is is meant to climb, you know, mountains. No. But but what's the 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 message that you hope to get out there? Well, whatever your dream is, I mean, whether it's climbing a cap or or running a marathon or or just you know going around the block, whatever your dream is, it's never too late to start. People, people buy into this media-driven thing, like, if you're 50, you should be taking this drug, and you should be sleeping as many hours, and you should be this and that, and you shouldn't be doing this and that or wearing this. That's nonsense. You, only you know what you are capable of. And if, if you don't push those limits ever, you'll never know what you're capable of. And that's really sad. You did it at 70. Uh, can we That's possibly right. book well in advance, get you back uh, 10 years from now for your 80th? Are you do it again, maybe? <laughs> well, if, if you'd asked me a few years ago what I'd be doing for my 70th, this would not, certainly not have been on my list. So you never know. You have, have to be open to the possibilities. Whatever but, comes up between now and then, I'll be open to it. Am I right that you obviously don't have a fear of heights, right? No. Or, or, or do no. you? Because well, no, there are people no, who no, climb no. who do. The, I, I did. I did you at did. the beginning. Huh. Oh, the, oh, the first few times I went outdoors with my, my little gang of friends who climbed, I was terrified. Oh, yeah. And first, first time we went up and did a multi-pitch, which means you go up and then you don't come down. You keep going up. First time we did that, I stopped at the first ledge and I turned around and I looked down and I was absolutely paralyzed with fear. I couldn't do anything. couldn't talk to them. I couldn't do anything. But... But once you learn to trust your gear and trust the fact that you are tied into that rope and you can't go anywhere, then that slowly goes away. It's not the, it's not the height that you're afraid of, though. It's the falling off the height. So if you're tied into the rope and, you know, protected those, all those different ways, you, that goes away because you know nothing can happen. Well, you're an inspiration to all of us. Deirdre, thank you so much for joining us today. <laughs> sure. Thanks for inviting me. That is uh, Deirdre Wolnick, uh, who just completed her climb of Yosemite, uh, oldest person to ever do it at 70 years of age. That'll do it for today's edition of KNX In-Depth. For Charles Feldman, I'm Chris Seedens. In today for Mike Simpson, we'll be back again tomorrow at 1.